Welcome to the 1CA Podcast. This is your host, Jack Gaines. 1CA is a product of the Civil Affairs Association and brings in people who are current or former military, diplomats, development officers, and field agents to discuss their experiences on ground with the partner nation's people and leadership. Our goal is to inspire anyone interested in working the last three feet of foreign relations. To contact the show, email us at capodcasting at gmail.com or look us up on the Civil Affairs Association website at www.civilaffairsassos.org. I'll have those in the show notes. A quick shout out to LC38 Brand. They're offering 10% off for 1CA podcast fans. The promo code is 1CA10. LC38 Brand has a little bit of everything for the international adventurer. So check out their website at lc38brand.com. I'll have the promo code and the address in the show notes. Welcome to One Civil Affairs Podcast. I'm Lieutenant Colonel Brian Hancock, and I will be your host for this session. Today, Brian Hancock hosts Colonel Tony Vaha. They discuss his experiences as the Civil Affairs Planning Chief for U.S. Army Europe and Africa, as well as his thoughts on the new Civil Affairs 38 Golf Program and discussions about the new Transitional Governance Doctrine. This is part one of a two-part episode, so stay tuned. I have with me in the studio, Colonel Tony Vaha. Colonel Vaha, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Outstanding. Let's give you a little bit of background. Colonel Vaha is currently the Civil Affairs Planning Chief for the U.S. Army, Europe, and Africa. He has previously served for two years as the Deputy Commander of the 353rd Civil Affairs Command in Staten Island, New York. He has had a range of assignments in both civil affairs and force management. He served as the lead concept developer for the 38 Gulf Career Field and the development of the Institute for Military Support to Governance. Quick reminder for the audience that all remarks by myself and Colonel Vaha are ours solely, and they do not represent the views of the U.S. Army or Department of Defense. Well, Colonel Vaha, you have done so many things in your 31 years of military service that uh, I'm not sure where to begin. Okay, all right. Your assignment as Deputy Commander yeah. of the 353 Civil Affairs Command, KCOM. Many of us will not have that opportunity to, to be a DCG uh, right. of a KCOM, and um, the KCOMs are growing. Mm-hmm. What is that experience like? What is it like to be at that pinnacle position in civil affairs, be the deputy commander of a formation that is very nearly the size of division? Yeah, it, it, it's a fun and exciting assignment. I always joke if if you're going to come serve at, at a KCOM, whether DCO or in the G3, um, you need to make sure you come with your running shoes on. As DCO, I was blessed to work for two really strong civil affairs generals, General Tim Brennan and uh, later General Dean Thompson, and watch them and get their thoughts on civil affairs and, and how to support a theater. I appreciate that commentary. Uh, as you're well aware from your work in Proponent C and your lengthy service, the bulk of civil affairs originally came out of Special Operations Commander in the USASOC. And as a result, we are very tactically focused. And when you look at what we do in, in, in war games and exercises, I've never seen an operational strategic civil affairs war game or exercise. So that work that you were doing at the strategic level at the KCOM, any thoughts you can share? Because it seems to me the gulf between what we do tactically 
versus how we make that operational strategic civil affairs leap is is vast. Yeah, I think I think it's challenging in terms of how we allocate forces to a GCC or an ASCC is uniquely different than the tactical mission set. And, you know, I had the privilege of serving at the KCOM twice. I was the deputy G3. And so I got to watch through exercises, austere challenge, judicious response, civil affairs planning teams. And we've, we've had some really strong colonels at 353. And when they take a mission, they lead it and execute it. And I've been privileged to see some of these colonels work at these headquarters. And it, it becomes an issue of the amount of time to spend someone up on whatever the problem set is, right? The, the faster someone can do that, the more agile they are for the customer, whether it be the GCC or ASCC. Outstanding. Let's continue in this vein on operational and strategic civil affairs. There's talk that the United States Army Civil Affairs and Psychological Operations Command may soon reorganize and actually make psychological operations and the theater information operation groups or TIOGs subordinate to the KCOMs. Is there any truth to this? Certainly that will put a KCOM at a division size if they do that. What are, you know, are they going to make our KCOM commanders two stars? No, yeah, probably not. Is this going to happen? And if so, so what are the implications? I, I've been told it's going to happen. Unfortunately, a lot of that came after my tenure as DCO. It does make sense in some ways because as information-related capabilities, I think there's a lot we could learn from PSYOP. And I also think there's a lot they could learn from us. I know for some of the POGs, they have multiple theaters that they're supporting. So that can be very challenging, right? When you have three different theaters that you're, you're trying to array your forces and, and align them to. I see goodness in all of it because um, ultimately, like I said, the KCOM is built as a strategic headquarters with a general officer, right? Who can engage in, in venues that a colonel can't. You know, when a KCOM commander comes to theater, they're meeting with maneuver division commanders, core DCGs, you know, the, these types of people, ASCC senior leaders, GCC senior leaders. So that could provide some advocacy for PSYOP. So I don't see it all as just a, a bad thing. I see it as an evolution. So I served at UC KPOC Force Development under Major General Daryl Guthrie. And he used to have a quote, he'd say, it's a shame the first time I really learned about PSYOP was when I became the two-star commander of UCK POC. And, and I think there's some truth to that, that we need to learn from each other because we share a common headquarters. I appreciate that. It seems to me that actually, you know, I've spent most of my career in UCK POC. We're a little bit late to the party. Now, we've been experimenting over the last few years, I believe even in the New York area by you, with um, putting some CA and some PSYOP together. Mm -hmm. What we're seeing at the larger level for joint combined operations, we're seeing formations like multi-domain task forces, which have been in development for 10 years now. We're seeing theater information advantage elements or theater information advantage detachments. And we're seeing in our G39 that uh, you're part of in uh, USERAF, there's a lot more capabilities than just CA and PSYOP because we're moving towards this concept of convergence um, to meet the challenges of modern uh, warfare, which means we have to synchronize every IRC and fire rapidly and continuously against every target to shape for a kinetic kill 
or to hopefully avoid a conflict. So at this point, you know, we're looking at putting eight plus IRCs together. So I think KPOC has some opportunity to advance that, but we're going to need to do, I think, a lot more than just putting CA and PSYOP together with a, with a high hog element yeah, concur. to stay relevant. No, I, I, I completely concur. And, and I had the unique opportunity to be part of the uh, information warfare design team that AR Cyber did a few years ago, which kind of led to the evolution of what the TIE is evolving to right now. And the one thing I'd always remind the other capabilities within the information arena is with current programmed forces, there's only two capabilities that go from ASCC all the way down to Maneuver Battalion, and that's CA and PSYOP, right? So when you look at how we get them engaged in a future fight, not, not probably, it definitely requires some synchronization and, and convergence at, at multiple echelons, just from the fact that CA is unique in that a branch or organization only has one role, by definition, for the Army. We are the only capability in DOD that is solely focused on foreign civilian populations. PSYOP is very unique. Now, they may look at foreign civilian populations, but they also look at threat actors. They're looking at a broader piece than necessarily we are. But that civil component, that civilian portion of the operational environment, I've always said when we were developing functional specialist capabilities in, in 2012 to 2015, which includes 38 Golf, but also includes AMED and JAG, uh, other capabilities. Why wouldn't other branches want to use functional specialists, yes. right? I think it can be as helpful to PSYOP and IO as it is to CA. Absolutely. I remember back at Rim of the Pacific a few years ago, building a fusion team with the evolving 38 golf program that um, I think we'll talk about here shortly. And they were the analytical brains with my SIM cell. Now we call it Civil Knowledge Integration Course, CKI. And together we produced products that the Joint Combined Task Force had never seen before. So there is, I think, incredible opportunity as a customer demand-driven organization for the larger army and the larger joint force for us to provide that kind of information and analysis and insight that allow us to significantly reduce costs in terms of, of lives and equipment. And, and of course, our struggle as a force is not winning a tactical battle. It's achieving our strategic objectives. So we walk away with having spent blood and treasure towards a larger purpose that really mattered. And that is very challenging right now. And the more destruction, the more death, the more crisis that happens in blunt contact, the more difficult that stability and achieving those long-term strategic objectives become. So a lot of opportunity in this space. Concur that the 38 Golfs are going to be a big player uh, in that. Let's talk about that. You were actually one of the founders of the 38 Golf Specialist Program. Can you tell the audience a little bit about the history of this military occupational specialty and how it came to fruition? Yeah, yeah, sure. So I was a doctrine developer at SWIC and then Colonel, a later uh, Brigadier General, now retired, Mike Warmack was the Commandant and he uh, assigned me as the OPR to do the initial research, did a lot of reading, 
read every manual, civil affairs manual, going back to FM 27.5 in 1942. So yeah, I've been asked by a number of people over the years, people are doing research on something and they'll call me and they're like, what triggered the development of it? And it was actually a joint capabilities-based assessment and got validated by the Joint Requirements Oversight Council, which produced J. Rockham 162.11, if anybody wants to look it up. So it assigned particular .milpfp responsibilities to SOCOM and SWIC to redo and or to professionalize functional specialists, basically. So unfortunately, the Army Reserve doesn't promote unskilled identifiers. So, you know, at least when I initially came into civil affairs, you know, circa late 2003, people would get promoted as lieutenant colonel into colonel into functional specialist slots. Well, they may or may not have any background for whatever they're promoted into. So it hurt us because we were in busy years, you know, th at that time. And um, so, so that's why the Jay Rockham said to professionalize the functional specialist program, 38 golf, a commissioned officer was the, the way that was chosen. Ultimately, the commander of USASOC at the time was Lieutenant General Cleveland. And he also wanted to develop the Institute for Military Support to Governance. So these were two distinct yet related initiatives. The 38 golfs, and functional specialists writ large were designed to be operational and out and about. The IMSG was uh, designed with some key functions that are currently missing. As a matter of fact, one, they were to inform the development of doctrine and training because you, you just can't expect a GS-12 doctrine developer to understand the range of the specialties. Yeah, and, what do we have, 21 now or something like that? Yeah. So, so, yeah, you had to, the experts were supposed to help us write what the doctrine should be. The second function that IMSG had, which is missing, they were supposed to be basically the, the talent management of all the functional specialists. Who do we have where? What are their specialty? Look at their career growth. What kind of assignments should they have? And then the third function, which we've had experience with in, in my tenure as DCO, was to be a place that you could go for requests for information or requests for assistance. Yes. Right. And there'd be a clearinghouse. Because it's not the two. They don't right. want to engage in that space. Right. Right. So, so you have this institute. Uh, and there's a fourth function. I, I got to make sure I hit that one, too. So this, this institute was designed to understand who's who in the inventory. So if a question came in on... Oh, let's say green in Eastern Europe. Okay, well, who, who has experience with that, right? And so the, the fourth function is they were designed to be a hub to the spokes to all the universities and other institutions. And where I see the, the demise of the IMSG as a uh, weak point right now, um, so we have a couple of uh, agricultural specialist at 353. I believe they've been on one CA podcast. They have. They're yes. outstanding. Yes. I hope we come, they come back. So they, they did some tremendous research on food security in China and Taiwan. So the next thing I know is as 353 DCO, I've got all these PACOM oriented organizations contacting me to send these guys, you know, basically all around the world. And I'm like, well, I'm, I'm the UCOM, KCOM, you know, we're not going to program money. 
So, so I still think there's a need for it. And even with the, uh, all the universities that MOUs have been with, right now we're signing TPU 38 Golfs to manage that relationship. Well, that's a little onerous to put on you know, a reservist to manage that type of a relationship. So I don't care if it's called the Institute for Military Support to Governance. That's just a name. But the functions we identified, I think, are still valid. And whether it's use of KPOC, whether it's someone down there, there, there needs to be some structure allocated because it's a capability gap that could get worse. I, I've always said that they are people that are intrinsically curious about their discipline. They are. So, and committed. And committed, absolutely. So their intrinsic curiosity leads them into research fields that don't marry up to the artificial lines we've drawn of the world called geographic combatant commands, right? Right. Yeah. So they may be interested in something and you're in the UCOM, KCOM, but they may be interested in researching something in Peru. Well, in the age of globalization, I think we just need to move away from the concept that these uh, complex systems are not interrelated. You know, our ends, ways, and means contracts mm -hmm. for strategy, even Colonel Like when he made that, says, look, that assumes the military operates in a vacuum, which right. I know it doesn't do. Absolutely. So all of these things are interconnected, mm -hmm. and often the richness of that analysis can generate new courses of action and opportunity if we look at those connections and how one influences the other. Absolutely. You know, for instance, uh, grain is not grain, as you know. Right. right? In, in Africa, which is a huge continent and another problem set, and in India, they eat very specialized versions of grain, and they literally can't digest certain others. So when you close down, say, a lot of the export of grain from Ukraine, that's not just a European problem set. Significant effects in both Africa and India and, uh, you know, the 38 Gulfs, because of their, their deep background and their professional network of connections, are able to holistically look at that in ways that internally, you know, a sim cell or something else just couldn't do. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and I would even go to the, uh, you know, the reorganization you talked about with use of KPOC. So the KCOM full-time staff isn't growing anytime soon, right? Yeah. Right. So you're adding capability in scope and scale and complexity. So managing this RFI, RFA process right now is, is an additional layer on top of all four KCOMs, yeah. theoretically, which is where I still see the need for something that can be the intermediary for how do customers throughout the US government get a hold and ask questions to functional specialists. Yeah, I, I think there's a lot of opportunity as we continue to evolve the program, but we've come a long way. When the program was initially rolled out, there were no direct commissions. There were no viable paths for advancement beyond, beyond a, a couple of promotions. It's evolved. How has the program changed since then? Yeah, I think the, the reason the program stalled was due to a lack of a capabilities-based assessment in 2015. And that was supposed to occur when I left in the summer of 2015. It was supposed to occur sometime in 2015, 2016. Myself and, and Dennis Cahill wrote the Military Support to Governance White Paper, which went from SWIC to ARCIC, but no CBA followed. So when SWIC and uh, USASOC Force Modernization Command now, when they did the capabilities-based assessment a few years ago, that produced the .mil PFP recommendations that we're seeing today. You need to validate requirements. 
right? And generally speaking, you don't validate your own requirements. That goes to the AROC for the Army or the JROC for the joint community. And once you have that piece figured out, then you have validated capability or requirements that you can build capabilities against. Amen. Enlighten me on, on one aspect of that analysis. You know, I think we're well aware and we've, we've talked about the value that these um, functional specialists bring. And, and we're very short of this kind of technical knowledge in the military and uh, partnerships with you know some of the universities can only go so far mm -hmm. without an internal interlocutor to manage those relationships and translate them into our military lines of effort so we really need this capability within the army it's very difficult to attract that deep capability let's talk about why the decision was made to make the 38 gulfs commissioned officers as opposed to warrant officers and and the reason i bring this up is that as commissioned officers, the way the Army human capital management system is built, the way they, they will have to manage that to promote is they're going to have to seek operational and command assignments, which are going to probably be well outside of their, their specialty fields. And in fact, because they've come in often at a higher rank as a subject specialist, they may not have the same level of experience leading troops in these kinds of warrior tasks and battle drills that, say, a 38 Alpha Civil Affairs Generalist Officer might have. So we're kind of forcing them into, into things where we take them out of where they had very leveraged value, putting them into things where they had less leveraged value and are less qualified than some of the other folks who are already available to do that. What was the logic? It seems to me that if we had made them warrant officers, we would have had the best of both worlds. Well, we're going to cut it there, but tune in next week and you'll hear the conclusion to the interview with Colonel Baca. Thanks for listening. If you get a chance, please like and subscribe and rate the show on your favorite podcast platform. Also, if you're interested in coming on the show or hosting an episode, email us at capodcasting at gmail.com. And thank you again to LC38 Brand for offering 10% off to our listeners. We've been nominated for the People's Choice Awards, and this is a little extra treat for those who made it happen. Again, the code is 1CA10, and the site is lc38brand.com. And now, most importantly, to those currently out in the field, working with a partner nation's people or leadership to forward U.S. relations, thank you all for what you're doing. This is Jack, your host, Stay tuned for more great episodes, 1CA Podcast.